0: Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage.
1: Welcome back, everyone.
0: Before we started recording, Luke and I were doing our usual jaunt through YouTube, visiting all of our favorite YouTube channels, Wet Movie, Cool Duder, people like that. There's one YouTube channel that we've never talked about, and that I'm not going to tell you who it is. I'm not going to tell you the name. I'm not going to tell you what the videos are because, first of all, this should be our little secret. We need to have <laughs> one that's just for us. But it is a vlogger that we've been watching for over 10 years now.
1: This guy's precious and we're going to protect him.
0: He seems like a nice guy. Oh, yeah.
1: And, and we don't... We, we, we love him. We
0: don't want to sick the hordes on him. But but we've been watching him since we were in undergrad, actually. And <laughs> he he had a video that was like the 10th anniversary of his channel today. It, this is his second channel. He had a channel before that, we used to love to watch that he deleted, but then he came back with a new channel. He had a tenth anniversary video, and it was sort of like him doing his State of the Union address for the channel. He was like,
1: the, the, "The state of the channel is strong."
0: Yeah, it felt like a stockholders' report, which you know, in a way, it was like we're we're kind of like the only stockholders, and so we were watching it and, it. and he's standing in front of his camera, and he's like, "Wow, can you believe we've made it here?" You know, no irony whatsoever. Can you believe we've made it here? <laughs> 500 videos and who would have thought we'd have discussed so many different topics at this point and i swear to you he gets sometimes zero views on the video if it's a video that we're not interested in watching sometimes it's zero more often it'll be like eight or ten views so this is true <laughs> message in a bottle shit you know and he's apparently completely oblivious to this i don't know if he's ever seen the view count and at one point he said you know to everyone who's watch some of my content who's been with me all these years just want to thank you and and I thought he's right you know we have been here all 10 years the undue confidence with which he said you know and anyone watching this has been with me from the beginning
1: you know, I and mean, he's never he's never mastered the actual process of uploading on YouTube he has the weirdest thumbnails because I don't think he seems to get that you can actually have a custom thumbnail you know some people do artwork some people
0: it's often somebody doing like soy face in front of a still from a movie (laughs) or a tv show and the and it's like why frozen is problematic
1: <laughs> but yeah our vlogger he's never mastered thumbnails and so i guess what happens when you don't upload your own thumbnails that youtube just generates one using a random snapshot and
0: all of his thumbnail images are him giving like the worst face <laughs> you know they're,
1: they're all like that photo you get where you're trying to get someone to take a photo of you and you say okay take a few because you know we will have to discard some of them and right away you look at them and you know in a few of them you're sort of between expressions or whatever all of his thumbnails he's between expressions he never arrives at a complete expression
0: i encourage all of you to find your own secret youtuber and follow him for over 10 years like we've we've watched him we've watched him grow we've watched wow. him change
1: yeah i mean we're really not in a position to make fun of him because when i saw that it was the 10th anniversary i thought wow we have been watching him for 10 years and then i realized well no it's the 10th anniversary of his relaunch channel and god knows how many years we were watching him before that on the 1.0 version <laughs> so um talking
0: about another cultural icon i I've been listening to a lot of Bob Dylan lately. i'm perpetually listening to a lot of bob dylan he's one of the one of the couple of music things that i know and love really well it divides our fan base when we talk about bob dylan Uh, some people can't stand it so i'm not going to talk too long about bob dylan but he's been on my mind this week especially because there was a big new article in vanity fair talking about the opening of the new bob dylan museum in tulsa oklahoma that's where the dylan archives that he's bequeathed to something or other are going
1: why is it in tulsa of all places why wouldn't it be in minnesota
0: Tulsa is a great music town, apparently. You know, many of the great legends of blues and jazz came from there.
1: Well, that makes me feel bad for the tourism board in Hibbing, Minnesota. Anyway, Dylan was
0: interviewed for the article, sort of explaining why it's in Tulsa, uh, saying this or that. The article goes into great detail about all of the stuff that's going to be at the museum. Like everything, you know, every concert is being digitized. Doodles that he scribbled on pieces of paper are being preserved as if they're Picasso's draft upon draft of tarantula the original typewritten drafts are being preserved it mentions in the article that dylan won't be at the opening he'll be living his troubadour lifestyle performing in i don't know new mexico or this or that but i don't think he'd go to the opening in any circumstance and i I, don't you just want bob dylan to like admit that he preserved all this because he wanted a museum (laughs) he'll never do it though he'll always pretend that this just This just happened accidentally. But as I say, Dylan has been on my mind uh, a lot lately, as he always is, never far from my mind. And I was reading from an anthology of writings about him called Studio A. I know you have it because I just picked it off your shelf to read a little (laughs) bit from it. There have been multiple anthologies of writings about Dylan. And I've noticed in all of them, there's something that happens between, I want to say, 1975 and 1997, where every article takes on this disappointed defeated tone they always take on this tone of ah yes he was once the prophet of a new generation but uh in a way the generation failed didn't it that's the general (laughs) tone of them so there's one in here by lester bangs uh the great lester bangs that coincided with the release of Shot of Love in 1981. And it opens, I was sitting in a cafe on the Lower East Side the other night when I noticed that this bunch of guys at the next table were having a high old time ridiculing Bob Dylan. They'd sing some line from one of his mid-60s albums in the ludicrous voice heard on the National Lampoon parody, which is, after all, not so different from Dylan's itself. Take what you have gathered from coincidence! (laughs) then they'd all laugh hysterically again. I certainly have no reason to leap to his defense in 1981, but what struck me was that a lot of the lines they were quoting were good lines, probably the same lines they quoted reverently between tokes in college. The lines hadn't changed, but their former guru had. Enough to be an outright joke now, so they were going to have their revenge on prodigal daddy can't say i blame them having done the same thing myself after a few beers although i did it to changing of the guards then later in this section this is sort of the section that covers the 1980s there's a, a review by howard hampton of oh mercy the 1989 album that was uh, sort of considered a minor comeback at the time
1: it's always been a favorite of mine
0: it opens the strongest performance on oh mercy bob dylan's latest day pass from oblivion is most of the time don't you love that day pass from oblivion
1: <laughs> i mean you where know, do Where do critics get off talking about Bob Dylan that way? That's what I want to know.
0: Okay, but but also... In 1978 or 79, I can't remember exactly what year, when his movie Ronaldo and Clara came out. This was this massive three hour, maybe four hour experimental film, concert film, collage film that he made from the Rolling Thunder review. It was not well received, and frankly, it I don't personally think it's a very good movie, but it's got a lot of interesting stuff in it, inevitably. The Village Voice did this round table discussion of various critics and scholars, and every single one of them hated it so much, and I think one of them even said like i wish he had died 10 years ago all of the writing about dylan again from 75 to 97 all carries this it's about more than just him it's about the death of the counterculture you know it's about what hunter s thompson wrote about you know that that wave that seemed just so close
1: and now you're referring to the cresting of the wave passage from fear and loathing in las vegas
0: yeah and nobody talks that way about dylan anymore people make jokes about him of course people do you know there are lots of things you can make jokes about but it never carries that kind of ah you know he never he never quite lived up to his promise but then in a way we didn't live up to our promise either (laughs)
1: neither did the 60s (laughs) and it's like
0: also behind all of these articles is this sense that like wouldn't it be nice if he just went away to stop reminding us of the failure of the 60s you know reminding us of our failure can't he just like either become a tribute act a nostalgia act can't he just be become Mick Jagger or he Go Away. That's
1: what I was going to say. I mean, what do people want? They want it to become some kind of like traveling circus, like the Rolling Stones, where you're not, you know, no one has seen the Rolling Stones perform for conservatively 30 years. When you go to see the Rolling Stones, you're going to see the Rolling Stones trademark. You're going to see a kind of uh, nostalgia review. If you go to see Dylan, uh, you know, which you and I have done, I think together a couple times, I've seen him once more on top of that. You know, you're gonna see you're gonna see weird stuff a lot of the time, right? You're gonna see classics, you know, absolutely butchered or reinterpreted, depending on how you look at it. You're gonna often see him, you know, not talk to the audience, you know, hardly at all or or not at all.
0: Sometimes, if he's in a bad mood, he'll use his voice as if it is a weapon against the audience. <laughs> Sometimes he will belt out the whole lyrics of a verse on the last note. <laughs> she the to love about. My brother was hanging out. <laughs>
1: But regardless, unlike the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan has continued to reinvent himself, has continued to make new music, and some of the music he's made over the last 30 or 40 years is pretty good. I mean, Modern Times has got to count as one of the best Dylan albums. Well,
0: as the announcer always says at the beginning of a Dylan concert, uh, he came back with some of the strongest music of his career. And I wholeheartedly agree with that announcer. But I mean, it's like that attitude in those articles isn't there anymore, I think, when people talk about him. He sort of outlived that. Maybe because New Jersey Generations have come along. People who weren't invested in the 60s and disappointed in the 60s or weren't disappointed in themselves for not living up to the promise are no longer leading the discourse. People whose lives turned into exactly the movie The Big Chill are no longer at the center of the discourse.
1: (laughs) Incidentally, have you ever seen The Rolling Stones in concert? No, uh, I would kind of like to, to be honest. See, I disagree. Uh, A couple years ago, it must have been, you know, in the before time, you know, before COVID, it could have been 2019, it could have been 2017. I really don't remember. The Rolling Stones actually played a big show uh, north of Toronto, I think it was in Barrie. And it was one of these shows, these big shows that the Stones sometimes announce, where I think it was announced quite late. And I remember thinking, well, you know, this is this is a probably a pretty good chance to go see the rolling stones maybe i should go and of course there's a part of me that still wishes i'd gone but i remember the next day it just being all over facebook you know everybody had pictures of this show and when i say everybody i mean everyone i have on facebook that lives in toronto and is and is over the age of 50 everybody had these shots you know of kind of jagger the size of a dot you know a few pixels tall across a you know a field and barry you know everyone was was wearing their kind of you know rolling stones memorabilia it really did have the look of you know not not like a bunch of people went to a concert and had a good time enjoying live music it really did seem more like uh, yeah like a nostalgia review you know a kind of a traveling roadshow or something like that and so i i think if i had gone i think my enjoyment of it would have been pretty complicated by that
0: the main reason i haven't seen them is because the ticket prices are so
1: expensive well yeah (laughs)
0: but but i mean i i still think i mean if they come around (laughs) one more time before they all die maybe i maybe i would go just to be in the room
1: yeah i mean Mick, Keith, if you're listening, you want to do an anniversary show in the Elma Combo and uh, you know, maybe pair it with the You need Mike an
0: opening act. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh,
1: Michael and us, the, the debut Michael and Us live show that we've been talking about for uh, you know a few years. Uh, you know, give us a ring. Before we get to the movie, just one
0: more uh, music memory. A couple years ago in the before times, I went with my parents to see Brian Wilson.
1: Yeah, I've seen him a few times. I might have seen him on the same tour.
0: Yeah, I, I saw him in Kitchener. You might have seen him in Toronto. Uh, he was touring doing the pet sounds album. From beginning to end, Al Jardine was there and he was assisted by a number of younger musicians who sound like he sounded in the 60s. And Brian Wilson, obviously somebody who has had a lot of difficulties over the years, somebody whose voice is... I say this with love, his voice is not what it once was.
1: Well, he just doesn't have the range that he used to have. I mean, he he still sings, but all that kind of falsetto stuff that, uh, you know, he used to do on Pet Sounds and, and those 60s albums, he, he actually just can't do it anymore.
0: So on a lot of the songs, he'll sing a bit of it. And then some of the younger singers will sing other parts of it. There was one song that he sang the whole thing of, which was God Only Knows. And he sang it with great difficulty, but he sang the whole thing from beginning to end. Everyone there understood, you know, he can't sing like he used to. This is not easy, but god damn it, it's Brian Wilson and he's singing it and he's still here and we love him. And after he finished it, It was a standing ovation Uh, so much love in the room somebody i got i feel moved saying this somebody from the audience yells we love you brian and he says thank you and obviously it's less polished than when mick and keith go out and do it but it's real it's it's meeting the artist where he actually is now and it's and it's an acknowledgement that just because he can't really do it anymore like he used to doesn't mean doesn't mean he's not great and doesn't mean there isn't value to being here with him and sort of paying homage to this person who did all of this amazing stuff.
1: What we see, and what we seem, are but a dream, a dream within a dream. You must learn to love someone else apart from me, Sarah. I won't be here much longer. In 1787, the 28th year of the reign of King George III, the British government sent a fleet to colonize Australia. Never had a colony been founded so far from its parent state or in such ignorance of the land it occupied. There had been no reconnaissance. In 1770, Captain James Cook had made landfall on the unexplored east coast of this utterly enigmatic continent, stopped for a short while at a place named Botany Bay and gone north again. Since then, no ship had called not a word, not an observation for 17 years, each one of which was exactly like the thousands that had preceded it, locked in its historical immensity of blue heat, bush, sandstone, and the measured booming of glassy Pacific rollers. Now this coast was to witness a new colonial experiment, never tried before, not repeated since. An unexplored continent would become a jail. The space around it The very air and sea, the whole transparent labyrinth of the South Pacific, would become a wall 14,000 miles thick. The late 18th century abounded in schemes of social goodness thrown off by its burgeoning sense of revolution. But here, the process was to be reversed. Not utopia, but dystopia. Not Rousseau's natural man moving in moral grace amid free social contracts, but man coerced, exiled, deracinated, in chains other parts of the Pacific, especially Tahiti, might seem to confirm Rousseau, but the intellectual patrons of Australia in its first colonial years were Hobbes and Saad. In their most sanguine moments, the authorities hoped that it would eventually swallow a whole class, the criminal class, whose existence was one of the prime sociological beliefs of late Georgian and early Victorian England. Australia was settled to defend English property, not from the frog-eating invader across the channel, but from the marauder within. English lawmakers wished not only to get rid of the criminal class, but if possible, to forget about it. Australia was a cloaca, invisible, its contents filthy and unnameable. Jeremy Bentham, inveighing against the thief colony in 1812, argued that transportation was indeed a matter of experiment, but the subject matter of experiment was, in this case, a peculiarly commodious one, a set of anime villes, a sort of excrementitious mass that could be projected, and accordingly was projected, projected, and as it should be seen purposely, as far out of sight as possible. To most Englishmen, this place seemed not just a mutant society, but another planet, an exiled world summed up in its popular name, Botany Bay. It was remote and anomalous to its white creators. It was strange but close, as the unconscious to the conscious mind. There was as yet no such thing as Australian history or culture. For its first 40 years, everything that happened in the thief colony was English. In the whole period of convict transportation, the Crown shipped more than 160,000 men, women, and children. Due to defects in the records, the number will never be precisely known in bondage to Australia. This was the largest forced exile of citizens at the behest of a European government in pre-modern history. Nothing in early penology compares with it. In Australia, England drew the sketch for our own country's vaster and more terrible fresco of repression, the Gulag. No other country had such a birth, and its pangs may be said to have begun on the afternoon of January 26, 1788, when a fleet of 11 vessels carrying 1,030 people, including 548 male and 188 female convicts, under the command of Captain Arthur Phillip and his flagship Sirius, entered Port Jackson, or as it would presently be called, Sydney Harbour. So, so begins uh, The Fatal Shore, the epic of Australia's founding uh, by the late Australian-born art critic Robert Hughes, whose uh, work we discussed a while back on the show, probably a couple years ago now, we talked about his remarkable documentary series, Shock of the New. Now, The Fatal Shore, as I said, is about the founding of Australia, but it's also very much about Georgian England at the time of Australia's founding, because as Hughes says from the outset of the book, no other country uh, has a founding story quite like this, you know, no other country was founded as a kind of giant offshore prison. Now, i am not finished the book, uh, but it really is a very fascinating study, particularly of the kind of social values that were dominant in England at the time. As cities were getting more populated, there was more and more crime, and there were also harsher and harsher punishments. People used to be executed for just kind of like petty theft and things like that. Prisons were thought of completely differently than they would later be thought of. There was no sense that these were places where people would go and then pay some kind of social debt and then, you know, come out better people or something. There was nothing sort of redemptive about them. They were literally just kind of giant hell holes that they would sort of put people in and forget about them. And it was understood that people would go in and they'd often come out worse, and then it would make them more likely to do crime again. And well, too bad, you can always just put them back in there. But so eventually, the chattering classes of England at the time decided that they just kind of wanted to export the problem somewhere else. Rising crime rates very much were a corollary of of rapid uh, political and economic change. But of course, that's not how they were understood at the time. This was understood as, as a problem of sort of deficient morals. You know, a problem that could be isolated and contained and sort of exported somewhere else. There's a very amusing chapter where Hughes examines kind of various other uh, stories that people have tried to introduce about the founding of Australia, perhaps to make it sound a little bit more heroic. So there was, for a time, a counter narrative. Which you know, I'm not an expert on Australian history, but he makes a pretty convincing case that there's really nothing to this. For a time, some historians were trying to claim that actually uh, Australia was, you know, the landmass of Australia was of tremendous strategic value to. The british empire at the time
0: is the idea that australia could be a sort of port of call to help england manage its various holdings in the south pacific
1: yeah exactly it was going to have kind of strategic value for uh, you know possible attacks on other european colonial powers and it was going to be a an important kind of trading zone and a place for ships going through the pacific to kind of stop and you know repair and refuel but this does not really seem to uh, to have actually been the case now, it only relates uh, indirectly to the movie that we watched today, but I did want to discuss The Fatal Shore, which I haven't finished and may, uh, may talk about again on a future episode. But we've long neglected Australia on this podcast, which to all our Australian listeners, I'm very sorry about that. We're going to rectify this uh, beginning this week. Australia, our analytics tell us, is actually our fourth largest uh, national listener base ahead of Ireland and just behind the United Kingdom. That's so- not
0: a listenership. That's a listenership. <laughs> A little, bit, a little Australian reference for all our fans down under.
1: <laughs> is that an actually an Australian movie, or is that an American movie? It is an Australian movie, uh, <laughs> shot
0: mostly in America, of course, but all the money went to an Australian native who uh, funded it named Paul Hogan.
1: Well, we'll have to talk about Crocodile Dundee at some point, which I'm sure all our Australian listeners are dying to hear <laughs> our, our take on Crocodile Dundee. It meant
0: so much to them to see their culture represented on screen, you know?
1: I <laughs> you know if if you are listening from Australia and you want to send us a message about what the reputation of that film in your country is, I would be very interested to know because because anything like that that 's canadian actually we would in a really pathetic way celebrate it even if it made canada and canadians look utterly ridiculous if there was a film about like a canadian stereotype you know making it in america we we would people here would just eat that shit up anyway we did not watch crocodile dundee this week we watched a movie that i'm very fond of by the australian director peter weir It's the 1975 film Picnic at Hanging Rock, based on the 1967 novel of the same name by Joanne Lindsay. Now, I'm not an expert on Australian literature either, but my understanding is the novel is widely considered an Australian classic and that because of the way it's written, it has an almost mythical character. It's a minor national fable of sorts. The film version is quite faithfully adapted from the novel and it's a film I've been fond of for many years, but I think it was your first time seeing it. So, well. first impressions, two thumbs up, two thumbs down. Uh, yeah, five
0: bags of popcorn <laughs> and a little soda in there too. Yeah, I'll probably have less to say on the film than you because i haven't really lived with this as long as you have but my first impression is that i liked it very much even though it's a famous film i knew nothing about it going in knew nothing about what it was about what the tone of it was and i very quickly found it a transporting mood piece a very powerfully strange also very visually and sonically beautiful film having seen so many italian horror movies i was really primed for the film's uh, dream logic and bizarre soundtrack so i highly recommend and all fans of Lucio Fulci's The Beyond or City of the Living Dead, check out Peter Weir's Picnic <laughs> at Hanging Rock.
1: You mentioned the film's dreamlike quality, uh, which is something that it gets partly from the cinematography and editing and also from the soundtrack. I think also it gets that somewhat from the acting, which in some cases seems almost intentionally stilted. All of this creates a very strange and unsettling atmosphere. I don't know of another film that feels quite like this, even though you don't really see anything particularly horrifying on screen. There is something very unsettling about it. And Joanne Lindsay, who wrote the novel, the rumor is, I mean, it may be apocryphal that, you know, she kind of had the idea for the novel in a dream. It's been speculated that she actually sort of dreamt it successively, but it certainly has that quality. I should say also, uh, I'm not sure quite where this fits in, but Joanne Lindsay did not write this book during her early career. She was actually born uh, in the 19th century, I think in 1896, and she died at nearly 90 in uh, 1984. So when the novel came out, you know she was already over 60 and it became her most uh you know famous and widely known book
0: the film begins on valentine's day 1900 in a private school for girls in victoria australia a number of the teenage girls are taken on a picnic to a local geological abnormality called hanging rock which is an actual place in australia a big oddly shaped rock formation they go for a picnic, and while they're there, several of the classmates, Miranda, Marion, Irma, and Edith decide to explore the rock explore the grounds the rock has this unusual force which is never fully explained no words are really put to it but it's a force i mean i was reminded a little bit of the monolith from 2001 a space odyssey but it's not just the rock it's also the surroundings peter Weir does unusual things with the sound and images during the scenes around the rock he'll cut to you know ants on the ground or birds in the trees things that are very normal but edited in a sort of of dislocating way and with this unusual atonal soundtrack that suggests that the very land is emitting this strange hypnotic effect on the characters the further they get into the rock the more the girls are overcome by it it causes them to collapse And then soon the girls mysteriously disappear.
1: Yeah, well, so three of them disappear and one of them ends up kind of trying to tail them and then completely losing herself and ends up running down the rock to where all the others were having the picnic.
0: That's Edith who escapes the rock.
1: And as you said, the rock has various mysterious properties. People's watches don't seem to work near it. There are a number of these kind of offhand comments that are made, which I think in isolation are offhand, but I think taken together are all quite evocative. So one of the teachers, Uh, her watch isn't working and she says it must be something magnetic you know as they're coming up to the rock in the carriage they're talking about its geological properties and one of the teachers says it's only a million years old you know it used to be a a volcano only a million years old quite a recent eruption you know and she talks about the lava forced up from below Um, and then she comments that it's quite young geologically speaking so given that the main setting of the film is this school for young women I think the imagery is pretty clear there there's something kind of adolescent about the rock
0: first of all the rock represents capitalism uh, <laughs> n- not actually folks uh, the, the the rock represents patriarchy no no not actually folks
1: will is riffing because i suspect he doesn't know what my interpretation of the film is and he doesn't have one of his own <laughs>
0: <laughs> the girls come from this very buttoned up school which is like this carryover of a very bourgeois english tradition would it be fair to say that the rock is sort of like the tree of knowledge in the garden of eden you know like is it this disruptive force that's sort of uh linked to the girl's sexuality in some way
1: well we should get to the rest of the plot but uh certainly at least one of my readings of the film uh yeah you're you're pretty warm there the fans want to know what the rock is <laughs> Well, before we talk more about the plot, I mean, it's worth saying that the film has only a very ambiguous resolution, or I suppose unresolution at the end, which I think at the time of its debut uh, made some critics very frustrated.
0: The movie reminds me a little bit of La Ventura by Antonioni, which would have come out 15 or so Oh yeah, years I never before. thought of that,
1: but yeah, absolutely.
0: I would have thought that it would have established a precedent for this sort of thing in people's minds.
1: I mean, regardless, you know, the, the movie does work as a very compelling mystery, but I don't think the way to watch it is to kind of look for clues and treat it like a puzzle that you're going to solve because it's it's not meant to be solved. I mean, I think there were a few subsequent kind of tie-in books. I'm not actually sure if Joanne Lindsay herself had anything to do with them, but I think there's, uh, you know, Secrets of Hanging Rock, The Murders at Hanging Rock, something the like Secret that. The Secret
0: Diary of Laura Palmer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically. But it does seem like Picnic at Hanging Rock established at least uh, something of a fan base, something of an audience, where their way of engaging with it was actually just trying to figure out what happened. And they started asking very Donnie Darko-like questions, you know, did the young women go up on the rock and a time warp opened up? You know, were they kidnapped? I don't think that's the way to read the novel or to watch the film. Although something else I'll point out is that you know, one of the things that lent itself to this is the fact that the novel is written in such a way, it almost seems to be describing real events. It comes with a little epilogue that to the reader looks like an excerpt from an actual you know, newspaper in Melbourne or something like that. I think that kind of thing very much shaped the novel's perception and and turned the films as well. When the
0: of the group returns to the school word quickly spreads not just through the school but also through the community about the disappearance the disappearance tarnishes the reputation of the school a number of parents begin to withdraw their daughters from the school there are a couple of other characters that it's important to mention there's a young englishman named michael who was near the rock and saw the girls exploring it didn't see the disappearance but he becomes obsessed with trying to figure it out
1: the, the film does drop these things that seem to be very bizarre clues I mean Miranda who's sort of the leader or I guess the, the queen bee among the the young woman who disappears she says in one of the film's opening scenes to a friend who seems to have a crush on her or be in love with her you know you mustn't get fixated on me because I won't be here for very much longer um, and then as she's leaving the picnic to climb up on the hanging rock she begins to walk away and then turns and waves at the French governess who's given her permission to go up on the rock in the scene where Michael observes them crossing this little creek, Miranda appears to pause, almost as if she's considering her next step, and then makes a kind of very determined leap across the creek. All of it's done in a way to suggest the creek represents some kind of frontier or point of no return. And then one of the last things we hear Miranda say before she disappears, as the three young women who disappear are standing up in the rock, she makes this very cryptic remark, everything begins and ends at precisely the right time and place. And shortly after that, she and the others disappear and save Irma, who later in the film mysteriously returns. Uh, The other two, Miranda and Marion, are never seen or heard from again.
0: Most of the girls at the school come from bourgeois backgrounds one who doesn't is sarah who's an orphan
1: and sarah is the one who has a heartache for miranda
0: yes and is devastated by her disappearance as i said she was an orphan and uh, she has a guardian who's paying for her stay at the school however the guardian has mysteriously not kept up with payments and has ceased any contact with the school So Sarah is warned that unless contact is re-established, she'll probably have to go back to the orphanage soon.
1: Now, various people uh, return to The Rock. The police conduct a search. Michael and uh, his friend Albert, they return to The Rock and look. Michael actually ends up spending the night there, and Albert has to come and rescue him. Adding to the mystery, uh, when Michael is brought back on a stretcher, he seems to have a piece of clothing, perhaps from one of the corsets of of the missing young women. Eventually, Albert somehow finds Irma trembling but still alive somewhere up on the rock when she returns she's really unable to say anything about what she's experienced all she'll say is she doesn't remember anything there's a scene where irma is brought back to see her classmates to basically say goodbye she's being taken away from the school they're all dressed in their white school uniforms she's wearing this crimson red dress and they all very quickly take to kind of hectoring her and, and demanding to know what happened and she and she has to be taken away Everything begins and ends at exactly the right time and place. Look.
0: One of the things that's very clear after the disappearance is there's a lot of moral panic in the community. When Irma is found again, uh, we're told the doctors investigated her and uh, nothing, nothing of that nature happened to her.
1: Yeah, Irma's reappearance only adds to the mystery because even though she hasn't been wearing shoes or stockings up on the rock, her feet are entirely unmarked, her hands are unmarked. She has only very minor injuries, but she still can't remember anything that happened. So this only adds to the enigma of the rock.
0: But that scene where she comes to see her classmates again, and they're all wearing white as they wear white through the whole movie, but she's wearing this blood red would suggest that it's like, you know, she's she's eaten from the tree of knowledge, you know? Know, some something has happened, something that people in the movie would consider lost innocence or dishonor.
1: You know, before we get to uh, possible interpretations of the movie, there's one other really important character we need to discuss. And this is the headmistress of the school, Mrs. Appleyard, who is a kind of a stern steward of, you know, Victorian era, you know, morals and values. Incidentally, the film takes place, it's set in 1900, which I guess is what one or two years before the end of the Victorian era. So the Victorian era is coming to an and
0: a portrait of queen victoria is visible in many scenes yeah,
1: quite quite a few quite a few portraits of uh, queen victoria appear now, Mrs. Appleyard, in a way, there's not a lot to her character, as I said. She's very stern. She's, uh, you know, quite a disciplinarian. You know, she's very harsh. She, sends Sarah, she decides to send Sarah, this orphan, away, saying, you know, this is not a charitable institution. The decision does seem to trouble her. She takes to drinking. But then, you know, towards the end of the film, and, you know, again, this is one of the things that's great about this movie. There are all these kind of throwaway uh, lines that you might not even notice their significance the first time you see it. But there's a scene towards the end where Mrs. Appleyard is having... A late night dinner and she's clearly trying to distract herself from the the trauma, the horror of what's uh, what's been taking place a- and she talks about uh, these holidays she used to take in Bournemouth and she says, oh it was wonderful nothing ever changed there, it was completely and utterly dependable and she kind of repeats that in various ways so we're getting a bit jumbled here in our retelling of the film but uh, in the finale spoiler warning I suppose Sarah about to be sent away back to the orphanage um, because her guardian uh, won't pay the two jumps out a window at the school and is found dead. Mrs. Appleyard learning of this, we don't actually see it taking place, but uh, in one of the final shots of the film, we see her in her office in full morning dress, and we hear a, a newspaper report about how her body has been found at the base of the rock, and she appeared to have died uh, trying to climb the rock. Now, there is an alternate ending, which was excised from the film, which, which shows Mrs. Appleyard going to the rock and kind of seeing, some, seeing Sarah there in sort of spectral form. I think the ending that we're went for is ultimately better, but it's an interesting little detail and you can watch it on YouTube. One other detail we forgot to mention about the disappearance is that Edith, who is the least mature of uh, the young women who who goes up on the rock um, and kind of runs back to the picnic screaming, uh, it later turns out that she's actually seen one of the teachers uh, going up onto the rock. They passed each other as Edith was going down and they eventually coax it out of Edith that Miss McCraw, the teacher, wasn't wearing her skirt and this is kind of one of the other motifs in the movie, is that as various characters kind of get higher and higher up on the rock, they also seem to remove layers of their very restrictive Victorian clothing.
0: There's a contrast throughout the movie visually between these bourgeois british derived rituals and institutions and the land that they're being held on like uh, halfway through the movie there's a scene at a sort of british style garden party where you've got the string quartet playing and everything and it's against the australian outback i say it's a contrast but in that scene where the girls are going into the rock it's not exactly a a strict visual dichotomy because like the girls at some point start sort of blending into the rock visually there's something you know lively and vivacious about the people in the film just as there is the landscape so i'm not sure if what the movie is saying is that there's a fundamental human nature that's being quashed by these rituals and these institutions that is always there just waiting to be erupted or is the movie also saying that in addition you know Australia itself is this wild untamed continent that is untamable and is especially good at getting that human nature out of you
1: yeah, I think there certainly is a reading of the film uh, and of the novel in which they represent a very sort of European perspective on Australia. I mean, it's notable. You don't see any of Australia's indigenous peoples uh, in the film, and I don't think they're they're mentioned in the book either. There's a literary critic named Kathleen Steele, and she, she pointed this out, uh, writing, The silence surrounding Aborigines and the manner in which Europeans foregrounded geographical, historical, and cultural difference and discontinuity yet denied Aborigines either presence or history created a Gothic consciousness of something deeply unknowable and terrifying in the Australian landscape. So she's just talking in general there about sort of uh, motifs in um, Australian literature. But she, remarking on the book, she says, Lindsay provokes a reflection on the understanding of Australia as an unpeopled land where nothing of consequence occurred until the British gave it history. And I certainly think that's to some extent a fair criticism. And I think the film can be read that way. I mean, in the image of The Rock, you know, there's certainly much about how it's kind of ancient and primordial and defies understanding, You know, there's that evocative line about lava ineluctably being pushed towards the surface. You know, there's the line about, uh, in relation to the clocks not working, about it being magnetic. There also seems to be something kind of Promethean about the rock. I mean, you mentioned the way Irma's dressed when she appears later in that scene. There's also a throwaway line from Sarah uh, later in the film where she's talking about Miranda and she says this very mysterious thing about how, you know, Miranda knows things that others don't. She knows secrets. Now, because she says it much better than I could, I want to read from a great essay by Megan Abbott about the film. The essay is called What We See and What We Seem. Abbott writes, From its beginning, Picnic is about watching, looking, about the gaze itself. The film opens with shots of the schoolgirls all peeping at one another through mirrors, doorways, and we, through the camera's voyeuristic intrusion into the girls' toilettes, their private worlds, are peeping at them. In the repressive atmosphere of Appleyard, young female flesh is to be hidden, contained, and unconcealed, only at hanging rock, unleashing as it does a mysterious eruptive energy do the hats and gloves come off, or even the stockings unrolled. Irma, indeed at some unspecified point, loses her corset. For Miss McCraw, only bloomers remain on last sighting. It's a striptease, but one feels, too, from the opening shots of the landscape, a larger sense of something else watching. Hanging Rock itself watching, a godlike gaze from above. The characters gaze up at it, but we also feel it gazing down at them, at us. With its Victorian hothouse atmosphere and fetishism, from the gloves and stockings to the flowers the girls fondled, the fixation on corsets, and its focus on the burgeoning sexual curiosity of the girls and the women, Picnic is deliciously ripe for Freudian and Jungian interpretation. And while the novel plays it cool, more interested in social mores and their unraveling, the movie is all heat. And just to interject, I guess we haven't really mentioned it, but there are various kind of subplots and other things hinting at kind of adolescent explorations of sensuality and sexuality, that kind of thing. So Abbott continues, Weir focuses on the sensate, the pleasures and dangers made flesh, repeatedly using his camera to pull back every curtain, to lift every petticoat, to unfurl every corset. Reading the film this way, one can see the bolder girls, aroused by the pagan pleasures of passing Valentines, and in far deeper registers by the wildness and eruptive lore associated with Hanging Rock, as eager to pass through innocence and into adult sexuality. It is a great and perilous passage to a place that they long to go. Others, like Edith, fear to go, are not equipped to go, from which there can be no return." If, for many of the girls, The Rock seems to whisper tantalizingly of the secrets of sexuality, it is no less meaningful a symbol for the adult characters. It is telling that the old maid, Miss McCraw, asserts that The Rock may seem old, but is quite young, geologically speaking, and bears the promise of sexual release, with lava forced up from deep down below. Likewise, for the stern, scolding Mrs. Appleyard, the rock is male, phallic, the sight of venomous snakes, and thus treacherous. The rock refuses singular interpretation, and thus is open to all, to her own imaginative longings and fears. So there's a lot more in this essay, but I'm not going to read all of it. I find that reading, I think, very persuasive, given all of the motifs and symbolism in the film. I think in one way or another, the story is symbolic of kind of the passing of one era into another. I think you can read the final scene in which Mrs. Appleyard goes to the rock to die, being symbolic of the world that she represents, you know, the mores and values of Victorian England passing into irrelevancy. I mean, if there's a political or social reading of the film of any kind, I think it would really be that. There's something about the rock and what it represents that seems associated with the inevitable passage of time, the inevitability of change. Mrs. Appleyard comes from a world where nothing ever changed for years. Nothing was recognizably different from one decade to the next. Everything, as she says, describing Bournemouth was completely and utterly dependable. And just as she can do nothing to stop the maturing of these young women at her school, the Victorian era and everything it represented can do nothing to stop itself from passing into history.
0: The body of Mrs. Arthur Appleyard, principal of Appleyard College, was found at the base of Hanging Rock on Friday, the 27th of March, 1900. Although the exact circumstances of her death are not known, it is believed she fell while attempting to climb the rock. The search for the missing schoolgirls and their governess continued spasmodically for the next few years without success. To this day, their disappearance remains a mystery.